Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, a place for interdisciplinary conversations in the broad world of business research. My name is Andrew Jennings, and it's my pleasure to be your host. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, leave a rating and let other people know about the show, too. And if you have ideas for the show, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. All right, time for the episode. Our guest today is Narine Lalafarian, Assistant Professor of Corporate Law at the University of Cambridge. We'll be discussing her new paper, Private Credit, The Evolution of Corporate Finance in the Firm, which I'll add a link to in the show notes for the episode. Narine, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Hi, Andrew. Thanks very much for having me. I'm really excited to have you on the show today to talk about this paper because the the topic is something that I've been seeing more and more, and I'm excited to see a new wave of scholarship that I anticipate we'll probably be seeing over the next few years about this world of private credit. Private credit seems to be one of the hot new developments in the capital markets, so really excited to have someone on the show who's writing and thinking about this area. Before, though, we get into your paper, I'd like to level set with the listeners and with you. I wonder if we could have some background in terms of when a business, when a firm needs to raise capital, it has some operational need, it has some perhaps M&A target that it wants to pursue. But when a firm needs to raise capital, why might it seek debt rather than equity financing? When might it seek debt versus equity financing and why? And then what's the scale of debt financing over the last decade or so, perhaps compared to equity financing? That's a great question. Just to say that this paper is just part of my bigger project that essentially reevaluates foundational legal questions in corporate finance because of all the sort of changes in the markets over the past 15 years, especially post-global financial crisis. But going back to your question, when equity and when debt, I think from a firm's perspective, there are just a couple of factors for choice between debt and equity. And I'll just mention a couple of them, of course, price and supply and risk, also the level of control that's requested by investors, how much flexibility they ask for. Tax will also play an important factor. And uh, market situation, I think, is another um, interesting sort of factor to consider because it may influence the way that the companies opt for different types of finance. So this is all very important. Perhaps also the prior relationship of the investors with the firm. And I think this is quite relevant in the context of relational finance, so in context of debt. And as we know, debt for a very long time was typically cheaper than equity, although at the moment we see now that we have the higher interest rates, so the situation has flipped a bit. But for the past 20 years, debt was typically cheaper. And from tax perspective, also interest paid on debt, as we know, is tax deductible. So it's quite attractive for firms to increase the level of gearing, so sort of debt to equity ratio in the firm. But at the same time, from firms' perspective, again, when a firm is highly geared, this sort of makes equity financing a bit sort of the investment more risky because Debt providers are paid out first, as we know, and equity is coming at the very end. So increasing your financial gearing increases also companies' cost of equity, and that would also increase a bit weighted average cost of capital. And from the point of view of equity financing, I would say it depends on the type of the firms we're talking about. Are we talking about an early stage venture capital, for instance, could be um, a good option or mid-stage or 
larger sort of private equity or investment, or are we talking about equity investment and public markets? So there is a lot of discussion about what's the optimal capital structure, and there isn't really one specific answer. But I think in terms of debt, I would say, number one, firm-specific factors, the size, reputation, companies' credit rating, bargaining power, also companies' sort of nature of business, availability of assets would be really relevant. Number two would be contract-specific terms, the term and the size of finance, the purpose of finance cost of financing, also regulatory and tax issues. Um, and also number three, I would say from the lender point of view, who's the lender, the type of debt investor, completion, what's the situation in the market, the competition in the market, and, and generally also international or national sanctions in the lending context. There isn't really one size fits all approach, but there are a couple of factors to consider. Going back to your second question on the scale of debt financing over the last decade, I think this is really interesting because the scale of corporate debt financing over the last sort of decade, I would say, has gone up really significantly. If we look back at the corporate finance markets over the past, let's say, 25 years, there are so many changes. And especially this is the case for corporate debt financing, because the change is it's quite big, especially post 2007 and eight global financial crisis. And, and now also we had COVID. So during the COVID times, I think, the global corporate indebtedness really reached unprecedentedly high levels. We're talking about something approximately 170% of world GDP. I think IMF, International Monetary Fund, has a, a data mapper that shows how indebted our companies. And in the UK alone, for instance, this level really reached approximately 100, 157.8% of GDP. So that's a lot. And now we're also living now for this sort of different types of crises, energy crises, and interest rates are really high at the moment. So many companies are also having troubles refinancing themselves. All these changes really significantly, I think, impact corporate finance, but also debt finance in particular. And we're having the highest amount of debt that will come due if we look at it in the last 20 to 30 years. This is really now the highest amount of debt that will come due and a lot of this debt now needs to be refinanced and syndicated markets, they can't do this alone. So lots of interesting questions there. In those lots of interesting questions, this paper really delves into some changes in the corporate debt market and the implications for both the structure of the corporate debt market and for corporate governance. Before we get to those changes, though, I wondered if you could give us background on just who are the traditional sources of corporate debt financing over the last few decades? What sorts of lenders are these? And how have what I might call these traditional lenders influenced corporate governance in return for the lending that they're extending to corporations around the world? That's an interesting question. I would say traditionally we were talking about bank financing. So banks are traditional providers of corporate debt financing and different types of debt financing, really loans, term loans, revolving loans, syndicated loans. This is sort of really the traditional type of business for banks and for a very long time, lenders predominantly involve sort of influence companies via contract because lenders protect themselves contractually and banks for a long time, and they still do this, they bargain for protection contractual protection. And I think depending on a type of a lender, 
the more experienced lenders, which are traditionally banks, they ask for a lot of protection or they used to ask for a lot of protection for representations and warranties and covenants, specifically financial covenants. And there are also sort of other types of covenants in the agreements, what we call sort of affirmative covenants and negative covenants, essentially telling what the borrower company can or cannot do. Events of default and debt covenants, I would say, for a very long time and still now, they serve lenders as governance mechanisms because they help lenders to ex ante screen different types of borrowers. This is especially relevant in the context of conditioned precedence to funding. But also later, when the funding is provided to companies, I'd say from a governance point of view, it provided banks with a lot of opportunity to scope to all the sort of contractual mechanisms to monitor the borrowers. It created this contractual framework, created an information sharing regime. And if things go wrong, of course, it might also have a, a sort of a strong disciplining mechanism because the lenders might interfere. Uh, in the UK, we have something called a, a de facto or shadow directorship concept, actually, where the lenders might potentially be held accountable as a de facto or shadow director. But lenders, traditionally, banks have been very careful not to be overly restrictive, especially outside financial distress, because they don't really want to be held accountable as a de facto or shadow director. But they still have managed to exercise really a substantial degree of control including by limiting number of actions in the company, for instance, restrictions on dividend payments or how much debt the borrower firm may additionally incur, mergers and acquisitions, restrictions on this kind of thing. So a lot of restrictions as to how much cash goes into the company and out. And predominantly, this has been done for contract. Thank you for that background in terms of the traditional world of corporate debt financing. I'd like to turn now to this brave new world of private credit funds that you talk about in the paper. Could you introduce private credit funds? How are they perhaps different from some of the traditional lenders that we've seen? This is a, a really big new submarket in the private debt world. But what's the scale we're talking about? Who are these funds or who are their investors who are supplying uh, the capital for this credit? And why have these new types or why has this new type of credit fund emerged as potentially a a challenger to traditional corporate lenders? What are some of the the dynamics in the market or in the regulatory space that are perhaps uh, leading to this new emergence of the private credit market? Oh, wow. That's a lot to unpack, but let me try to do my best. So just in terms of unpuzzling what private credit is, I think we're talking about non-bank lenders They are sometimes also called shadow bankers, but I personally prefer the term non-bank lenders. And the reason for this is because shadow bankers implies a negative element. But I think that as with any phenomenon, really, there are both advantages and costs to non-bank lenders. So I will call them non-bank lenders. In very simple terms, we're talking about non-bank lenders, so specifically private credit funds, who are directly lending to companies. So there isn't really any intermediary in between. There is no intermediation in between. There are no banks in the middle. And the reason why sometimes private credit is also called direct lending, I think it's because it's lending directly to corporate lenders. And there isn't really a consensus, I think, as to what private credit is yet. And in in professional and academic circles, I think the term is still being polished. But I think it, it makes sense to say that direct lending is one of the private credit strategies 
And there are also other strategies, for instance, asset-based finance or distressed and opportunistic debt investment. Direct lending is the biggest one so far. And going back to your point about it's a new huge submarket, my answer is yes and no. Yes, I'd say what's new about it is that it's a huge submarket nowadays. But it's not a new phenomenon because private credit, it's not really new. It's, it, it has become new because it has really grown so much. But as an asset class and the sort of whole concept of private credit fund, it's not really new. It was there. It existed even prior to the global financial crisis of 2007 and 8. I agree that it feels new. It's now everywhere. It's making headlines daily. The new force of finance, the golden moment for private credit. What's new about it, it's how much it has grown over the past years and post-GFC and now also with COVID and after COVID as well. The, the past two years, I think we see a lot of growth in this market. And as a result, it has become new because it, it's this market is growing so rapidly. So what's really new about it, I think it's that the power of this private credit fund, their experience, their investment appetite, all of this has really increased. As to how it started and where we are now, private credit originally, it started as a market to middle market company. So we're talking about annual revenue somewhere between 10 million up to 1 billion. So larger than small companies, but smaller compared to the big ones. And originally, many of the clients of private credit industry were non-investment grade borrowers. So we're talking about corporate borrowers that are traditionally, they didn't really have a high credit rating. And it's private credit. So we're not talking about public credit. We're not talking about bonds. We're talking about loans. In terms of scale, the market has really grown a lot. And I can just give you some approximate numbers because there are different sort of numbers in different places. But I would say that the scale is from approximately 250 billion in 2005 to 1.6 trillion in 2023. Probably it is close now to 1.7 trillion as we speak today. And Prequeen and its Prequeen Global Report 2023. They, they also project that private debt as an asset class is going to increase to 2.3 trillion by the end of 2027. So it's really growing. In terms of geographical or sort of jurisdictional routes, private credit really started mostly as a U.S. phenomenon, as a sort of a small alternative to the Wall Street. Now it's a big alternative. But now it, it also, the rest of the world, it has really expanded from US to Europe, UK, Asia, Middle East, Australia, Africa, Latin America. It's really everywhere now. I'd say UK is the second sort of biggest market after US. And things are also changing a lot in Europe. You can see how private credit industry is growing in Europe a lot. And it started, as I said, as a market where the companies will just get a couple of hundred millions, but this wasn't really a large scale financing. And it's really interesting because in 2023, we saw the two biggest private credit deals to date. The first one was for Finastra in the US, 4.8 billion was the financing. And the other one was 4.5 billion financing for Adeventum. And what I find really interesting also doing the research in this area is private credit funds have even started providing finance to really big multinational public companies. 
Wolf's bid, for instance, AT&T, Air France. And I think this is really a development. It will be very interesting to see if these are just a couple of examples where these public companies go for private credit, or is this really becoming a trend? I don't do a forecast, but I think it's really interesting. And you can also see on the news that there's sort of discussion that a 10 billion private credit deal might not really be in the distant future. In terms of who are these funds, traditional asset managers, just give a couple of examples, Apollo, Ares, KKR, Carlisle, Blackstone, Oak Tree Capital. There are many funds now, uh, many new private credit funds, especially now because it's a very profitable business. But the big players like Apollo, Ares, KKR, Oak Tree, they were in this private credit industry before even the global financial crisis started. And going back to your question of why these funds are now so competitive, how are they challenging traditional corporate lenders? What are the drivers of the change? I think there are a couple of points here, and it's not only because of regulation, which I'll address in a moment. I think the first thing is there is more corporate debt now than there has ever been. So from the supply-demand perspective, companies really require more debt for a variety of reasons, be it debt used for working capital, sort of capital expenditures, refinancing, leveraged buyouts, and what, what happened in March 2023, the banking crisis in the U.S., and then there was this really big wake-up call for Credit Suisse, and it then merged with UBS. From my point of view, this was really the big takeaway here was importance of debt, capital, uh, in the sort of from the macroeconomic point of view, but also importance of debt capital as a lifeblood of business. It really supports millions of companies worldwide. So a lot of debt at the moment, more than we ever had. Number two, obviously, market changes and regulatory changes. I think initially one might say that this all started post-GFC, but I think this goes back to 1970s. Before 1970s, I think the corporate debt financing markets, they were quite slow. They were very slow developing markets and there was a very sort of strong relational finance element attached to them. Uh, we had commercial banks and they relied on their relationship with companies. They originated debt and they kept that sort of until at maturity or repayment. Um, and there was also as a result of this, because there was relational finance, there was less information asymmetry between providers of debt and receivers of debt. And these things really started changing in 1970s when the syndicated loan markets started to gather speed. And I would say that not only debt investors, but also companies that were getting money from these investors became much more sophisticated. And then before the GFC, and especially in its aftermath, there has been this really bigger change in the nature of debt finance and also who provides this debt financing, because there was all this sort of regulation post-GFC, um, the Dodd-Frank Act in the US, Basel Free Regulations, essentially in one way or another restricting banks' ability to provide long-term relational finance and also finance above a certain size because we know that banks have to comply with capital adequacy rules. They can't really keep a lot of debt on their balance sheets. So this was really one of the biggest changes and it, it really fueled the competition in corporate lending markets. So this is how it really started. Increased competition between banks and also we have the funds now. 
And we know that private credit funds are not regulated in the same way as banks are. There is regulation that applies to them as asset managers, but it's not the same as banking regulation. And because of this regulation, banks essentially started shifting from their traditional business model, which was essentially originating debt and keeping this debt until maturity repayment. And they, what they do now, their funding model is what I call and what's what everyone in the industry calls originate to distribute because they originate this debt with the intention to sell debt to the secondary liquid loan market. And I think in the finance community, this is also called moving business or as practitioners call it, trading the risk. If we compare this with private credit funds, they have largely focused on the funding model of originating debt and keeping it. So originate to suit and fit really the portfolio of the markets that they operate in. And we call this more like storage business or as the practitioners call it, owning the risk. And relational finance is now in the hands of private credit funds because banks cannot really do what we used to call traditional banking. What's also very interesting is that at the moment there is competition between private credit funds and banks in the context of financing this leveraged buyout, the debt part of it. This competition is now resulting in, in a phenomenon or in a trend that we call dual track process, where both banks and direct lenders are actually competing. They are providing competing terms to their clients. And we also see that private credit is, in terms of competition, the developments are a bit similar to private equity because in private credit, funds are now competing with banks, but they are also competing with sophisticated LPs, limited partners, sophisticated institutional investors, sovereign wealth funds, for instance. And those are also these institutional investors are now slowly starting to compete with private credit funds. And they're trying to bring in investment on their own. So there is a bit of a, a triple competition layer here. It gets very interesting because it's not only competition between the funds and the banks, but also institutional investors. Some of them that are very sophisticated can just come in. And at least initially, I think, and still predominantly, the private credit model, the business model is based on an illiquid market. So we are starting to also see the rise of continuation funds or evergreen funds in the context of private credit. We know this from private equity, but typically an investor who invests in private credit really knows that generally this is an illiquid investment and they price this accordingly. They also get a illiquidity premium for it. So I would say that was the sort of the second factor for the driver for change. And the third one is obviously debt currently offers very attractive nominal returns due to the higher level of interest rates. So I think this also plays in a, an important role in terms of how things are developing in debt markets and that a lot of investors are now allocating their investments into debt as opposed to equity. That's a really helpful macro view of this private credit market and some of the, the competitive dynamics between it and the traditional market and some perhaps bifurcation even within the, the private credit market in terms of that triple layer competition. With that macro view in place, I wonder if we could get a bit more micro. Could you talk a bit about the economics of private credit deals? How are these deals structured? And are there any differences in that structuring from, 
uh, traditional corporate lending, which does have that perhaps originate to distribute business model, whereas the business model might be a bit different on the private credit side. What, what are the economics of these deals? There isn't really one size fits all approach for t- all types of private credit deals, but let me try to compare it based on the obvious differences of uh, the economics um, of these deals. If I compare private credit, let's say direct lending strategy with bank lending, including syndicated lending, deal execution, I'd say it's the first difference. Private credit is typically a bit faster in terms of they have more speedy underwriting, shorter due diligence compared to banks. And one of the reasons for this is because private credit is typically a bilateral relationship between your lender and the borrower. So it's you only have two parties, whereas in terms of deal execution and, and syndicated lending, we know that, for instance, there are multiple players and the coordination between sort of all these different parties also takes more time. So deal execution is one difference. Business model is quite different. I just mentioned the banks, they typically, not always, but they have to originate debt and later distribute it. And it's more of a, a short-term engagement with a borrower firm, whereas for private credit, typically they self-originate. So they originate to student fit, as I said. It's a longer-term relationship. They do sometimes also buy loans from banks, but they also very often self-originate. The market type, I would say, is also different because in the context of bank lending, at least traditionally, we are talking about liquid secondary loan market the past years. Although in the recent you know, years, because of all this economic turmoils, we might see that the availability of liquidity is, is really sort of being tested. Private credit, it's mostly an illiquid market. The investment in this market is illiquid. You can't easily exit it. And that's the reason why in one of the reasons, among many other reasons, that in the current market situation where liquidity is being an issue, private credit is having an upside because it's an illiquid market and the business model is quite different. Number of lenders, I would say, is is another difference. So if we think about bank financing, okay, we have a bilateral loan, we have one lender, potentially this lender might be subject to change. In a syndicated loan, we have a group of several lenders. So typically many lenders in terms of coordination, this is becoming a bigger issue. When we compare this with private credits, if it's a bilateral loan, you only have one lender and this one lender stays, stays until maturity or repayment. We also have something in private credit that's called club deals. And this is really for larger deals. And several private credit funds might just get together. So there will be several lenders. Uh, a bit similar to syndicate loan, but not really similar because the number of lenders is much less. Even in a club deal, you will have uh, less lenders and there will be less costs and less information asymmetry also between different types of lenders. Another big difference is the type of relationship between the parties. As I said um, a bit earlier in non in bank financing, we're talking about typically, not always, but typically non-relational finance because the banks have to exit the relationship. And from borrowers' point of view, I think the interesting thing there is that the borrower might not really know very well the lender or might not know very well the other lender who's going to buy its debt. So this is becoming the, the sort of the relationship issues become really interesting post transfer of the debt. And when we compare this with private credit, um, there is more scope for relational finance because it's a, a long term relationship. But at the same time, there is also a small disadvantage to this because 
the longer you're, you have a relationship with your lender, the more they know about you. There is a disadvantage of a holdup problem, as we call it. Credit rating is one big difference. So credit rating is required for obtaining bank financing. And many of the companies in bank financing, many of the customers of bank financing will also be investment grade borrowers with higher sort of credit rating. Not always. They, obviously, there are also non-investment grade borrowers, but credit rating plays an important role in bank financing compared to that private credit. At least initially, it started as market where rating was not required. It's still not required. There are also companies that don't really have rating at all. This is a leverage market predominantly, but we also, especially in the sort of the recent past two, three years, we see some sort of investment grade borrowers also having access uh, to private credit, getting money from private credit funds. Other dis- differences are about transparency and confidentiality. There is much more transparency about the deal in bank lending. It's less confidential. Just because, for instance, the involvement of credit rating agencies, so you have other parties that are also part of your financing relationship. So there is more disclosure and people know what the deal is about. And private credit is very private. There is less transparency. It's highly confidential. No requirement really to get to have rating. So in terms of transparency and confidentiality, this is another difference. Investor return is also another difference between the two. Typically, not always, but typically in bank financing, we're talking about fixed interest rates. There are also floating interest rates facilities, but it's usually a fixed interest. Whereas one of the sort of advantages, potential advantages of private credit, at least in the current market, is that they provide inherently floating interest rate facilities. So it's an interest rate on a floating basis. It's reprised every 30 to 90 days. And this sort of really gives companies, lenders, a good opportunity to have dynamic valuation of the firm. So this were just a couple of differences. The borrower base might also be another difference for bank lending. For bilateral lending, it could be 200 million and below. But for syndicated lending, we're usually talking about 200 million to 5 billion of EBITDA. So bigger companies, also investment grade firms. Private credits, as I mentioned um, earlier, it's typically middle market companies. Although recently we also see this very large club deals, the borrower base is also becoming bigger in private credit. Contractual credit protection is another thing that I'd like to mention in terms of the difference. Bank financing, the past couple of years, we see this covenant light facilities. So there wasn't really a lot of protection for companies' lenders. This might be, of course, subject to change due to the banking crisis and what's going on now in the markets. But private credit was different from bank lending, and it's still different because private credit funds, they bargain for tighter covenants. So we're talking about financial maintenance covenants, stronger protection, and also higher call premiums. Um, And in terms of also asking for assets, proprietary creditor protection, Private credit is predominantly asset-based credit, so they ask for tangible collateral. In bank financing, it really depends on the type of the borrower firm, not always asset-backed financing, whereas um, in private credit, it's predominantly asset-backed financing. Regulation is obviously another difference that, that I just mentioned. And finally, the funding model. I think there is a lot of reliance on deposits in bank lending, so there is a demand for liquidity. Whereas in private credit, the capital model is that the funds are raising their funds. So there isn't an issue of 
liquidity there. It's a long-term funding and they're stuck in this relationship with the companies for a long time. So the funding model is also different. Of course, corporate lending has both economic and governance implications. I wondered if you could talk about how private credit funds are interacting with the corporate governance side of things and and maybe how that differs from traditional lenders and also perhaps how that might differ a bit from the corporate governance implications of equity. I think not everything is different. There are certain things that are in terms of interaction are similar, but there are also certain things that are modified, more tailored to the private credit business model. And in my papers, I work with a sort of I tried to develop a taxonomy of modern debt governance with similarities and differences depending on the type of the debt holder, whether we're talking about a bank or a private credit fund. And before I mention a couple of the sort of similarities and differences, I would say that the first question that one should ask themselves is, what do they have in this? Why would they exert any effort? Because governance is always about cost and it's always about effort. So why will a lender try to do this. And the shorter answer as to why private credit funds, they really engage in corporate governance more than the banks is because these types of investors are, they're very interested in non-default governance issues because their investment is a bit equity-like. So that's a short answer. But in terms of more differences, I would say, first of all, as I said, private credit, there is a lot of scope for relational finance, no exit. Typically, the sort of the lenders and the borrowers are locked in a relationship. And this also gives an opportunity to the borrower to get to know their lender better and at some point also try to trust the lender, the owner of its debt. Whereas in bank financing, unless this is a sort of a micro and small sort of a small firm and they usually might have troubles getting bank financing but still banks are interested in exiting the relationship they just can't keep it on a balance sheet and borrowers might not really know very well their lender or trust who's the subsequent owner of their debt investor return i think plays an important role in the difference how banks are engaging with their lenders from a corporate governance point of view and private credit funds because It's typically uh, a fixed interest rate uh, in bank financing. And so the banks are interested in the borrower firm's sort of value maintenance, whereas private credit funds, because of the inherently floating interest rate, which is repressed every 30 to 60 days, they are directly on an ongoing basis participating in the company's valuation. But also there are sort of other types of components in the fees that they will get out of this relationship. So if they have a minimum return on their investment and depending on the market conditions, you can get 10 to 12% or if it's a opportunistic or distressed debt investment, even very high, like 20% return on your debt investment. So debt investor return also plays an important role in how companies engage with their lenders in terms of corporate governance and how lenders engage with the company. Board representation, I would say, is another difference in private credit funds bargain ex ante for board representation, whether for just observer rights or having more formal say. Sometimes they, they also have informal meetings with the firm, but board representation is a sort of a bigger thing in private credit outside financial distress of the borrower firm. So they're actively seeking board representation from day one. And they could be active or passive sort of um, 
in this in in their role as a sort of board observers really depends on the company and also at what stage it is in its cycle and its business. But if we compare this with banks, typically, not always, but typically they might bargain for board representation when the company is really not doing very well. And during financial distress, debt holders take control of the firm. Originally, banks had a bit of board representation, but things have changed with regulation. And generally, as I mentioned, for instance, in the UK, banks will be very careful not to be overly restrictive. In the past years, they have been very careful not to be involved too much in the governance and control of the company so that they're not held as de facto or shadow directors, whether it's formal or informal involvement with the company. And in terms of incentives, for instance, to renegotiate or restructure debt, which is also part of the dialogue between the lender and the borrower in terms of how the lender is monitoring the borrower firm and requests for some changes in how the company is being run. I would say that in terms of incentives in bank financing, just because of the model, the business model that the banks have nowadays, the incentives are lower compared to private credit because banks are interested in exiting this relationship because they cannot really keep it on balance sheets. But at the same time, they might have to renegotiate the financing agreements in order to be able to exit later. Whereas in private credit, the incentives are higher. You don't really have exit, you're stuck in this relationship for a couple of years, lots of scope for relational finance. This is another point which differentiates bank financing from private credit. Control rights and covenants are, are an important sort of governance tool where for banks, it's mostly ex ante control rights through covenants. But in the past years, we see a lot of covenant light facilities. In private credit, the control rights are more strong and dynamic in their nature because for instance, the interest rates are reprised every 30 to 60 days. And this also gives private credit funds, the, the investors also a good window to see what's happening in the company and how to influence the company. And as I mentioned, in terms of covenants, which are really one of the main sort of debt governance mechanisms, private credit funds bargain for financial covenants, including financial maintenance covenants, so stronger covenant protection, also proprietary control rights and Generally, agreeing whether to operate within restrictions or not is a form of governance. The final point I'll mention, and, and if the listeners are interested, they can take a look at the paper. But I think parallel equity ownership also is, is one factor where there is a bit of a difference between private credit and bank financing as to, for instance, in private credit, in the private capital world, it's not very uncommon for private credit fund to be also be engaged in private equity. So it's the same fund and one umbrella of it is doing private credit. The other one is doing private equity. So the funds might be affiliated and they are both investing as an equity and debt investor in the same company and potentially, or they might be affiliated funds. And as a result of that, this sort of potentially not always, but it might also reduce the conflicts of interest between equity and debt investors in the company, but also how they interact with the firms. And pr many private credit funds also, when they lend to companies, they bargain for very substantial equity upside. Now, that's not new. And banks have been doing this for sort of some time. They have also bargained for conversion rights, debt to equity swap as a result of restructuring. The swaps also obviously exist in bank financing. But I think the parallel equity ownership in the same way where uh, it's not about conversion, but it's about holding parallel positions in the company. 
this tends to be more of a case in the private world, private credit, private equity compared to bank financing. Narine, what closing thoughts would you like listeners to take from this interview and from the paper? And are there perhaps any open questions that you're thinking about or that you'd like the listeners to be thinking about? I think there are many open questions here because there isn't a lot of research on private credit funds. There are some very interesting papers in economics and finance, not a lot in law. So I think there's a lot to unpuzzle in this area. I think really interesting questions are what's the relationship between sort of equity and debt investment in the company and especially what is equity and what is debt in private companies, which are increasingly growing in their numbers because we also see a lot of migration from public to private markets. And the developments over the past years in private equity and now also in private credit show that sometimes from a single investor's point of view, what is equity and what is debt is is not that important. It doesn't really matter. Maybe we can just say that it's capital. But it's interesting at the same time that when we look at it from a broader perspective, what is equity and debt and sort of the interaction between equity and debt in the firm In the context of restructuring proceedings, of course, it's very important to understand what's equity and what's debt. I think another open-ended question is, and and, and potentially this is an area where one could do interesting research, is behavioral economics to look at behavioral changes of institutional and retail investors when it comes to debt investment and how these developments with respect to the boom in private markets, especially private credit at the moment, potentially affect the interests and incentives of debt providers and the relationship, their relationship with companies. Another question that I'm very interested in is, and I'm working on it, it's a new paper, looking at private credit funds and when they have their nominees on the board of directors, what does this really mean for these nominees on the board in terms of how they perform their functions? Now, in, in English law, for instance, There are really interesting questions whether they owe fiduciary duty. And I know that the position for this board of service is not the same in the US, but under English law, questions arise as to what we call in the UK shadow directorship or de facto directorship, and also questions about generally director's duties. So when you are a nominee on on the board and when you perform your director's duties, what happens when there are potentially conflicting interests between the company on whose board you're sitting and your investors, whether it's I'm specifically interested in private credit funds and sort of their investors. And the short question is that you usually should consider the interests of the company on whose board you're sitting, but uh, it's not so clear cut. So I'm very interested in exploring this. And in terms of what's the key takeaway, I think there's a lot there, but the key takeaway is that debt is not the same as it used to be. Debt investors are not the same as they used to be. There is more competition between banks and funds, and debt investors have become really much more sophisticated. They all have more and more experience. There's a lot of innovation in the markets now, very interesting new debt tools, unit tranche financing, club deals, this NAV loans, net asset value loans, etc. The takeaway might be to think about what do all these developments really mean for the role of debt in the firm and also for its relationship with equity. And I personally think that there has been a sort of quantum leap development in corporate finance with this higher interest rates now. It's really exciting to work in this area. Our guest today has been Irene Lalafarian, Assistant Professor of Corporate Law at the University of Cambridge. We've discussed her new paper, Private Credit, the Evolution of Corporate Finance and the Firm, which I'll add a link to in the show notes for the episode. Narine. Thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast.
It was great to be here. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, rate the show, and let other people know about it too. If you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.